Hey guys, and thank you for joining me. This is your host, Muhammad Halaiba. Welcome to a new episode. Since our previous episode last week, a lot has changed. One, our exam scores came back, and it's great news for the majority of us that have passed. For those who did not pass the test, I'm sorry that you're going through this, and I hope you keep a couple of things in mind. One, the test does not reflect who you are as a person and who you are as a radiologist. What the test really reflects is your performance on that day at that moment of how you answer the questions. While it is a assessment of your total knowledge of residency, it does not reflect who you are as a radiologist, and this can be taken for any test. Now, for example, in my case, I scored very well in mammography, even though based on question banks, my performance was way below average. And for interventional radiology, I always scored extremely well in the question bank question set. For the ABR core exam, I was hovering on the passing side, which means the exam is not really reflective of your performance or knowledge. It's really reflective of your performance on the day of the test. Now, for physics, they changed it where now you don't condition physics. You either fail everything or pass everything, which can be difficult for those who fail as you would have to study everything. But on the other hand, it increases the number of people who pass because they performed poorly on physics. So I could see it double edge. But if you failed, it makes studying extremely hard. Take this upcoming three months to reinvent yourself, to work hard, and to take it as a motivational step in toward your career in becoming a radiologist. What defines being a good radiologist versus being a poor radiologist is every decision that we're making when we're reading an image. Excellent radiologists make mistakes, and poor radiologists make excellent findings. It's because of every decision that we're making when we're looking at the picture. So don't be too hard on yourself, but be hard on studying hard so you can pass the test. I truly, truly, truly wish you best of luck. It is a difficult, difficult experience to go through to not only fail the test, but now to have to recover from this trauma. And every time that you're studying, you're telling yourself, oh, I failed the test, which makes it even more painful. So please do not let that get into your head. You're better than this and work hard to pass this test. You will pass it and study hard. And for those who are studying, I would take my motivation to pass this test so I don't have to study. And that's really the fear I had, that I would have to spend another three months studying for the test. But thankfully, I don't have to. And now I'm dedicating more time toward producing this podcast. We'll continue with our GU section. And the first question is review from yesterday. What are testicular tumors with elevated AFP? We said we have two, mixed germ cell tumor and yellow sac tumor. If it was elevated beta-HCG, then we think of choriocarcinoma and seminoma. Manifestation of post-renal transplant complication. So the key thing in differentiating the complications is the timeline of when the complication happens. We have five pathologies, hyperacute rejection, which happens immediately. And typically this is in a patient who is presensitized to the transplant, meaning having multiple transplants, 
and they will see it immediately as they transplant the kidney and blood gets to the kidney. After hyperacute, we have acute rejection, which is rejection to the transplant kidney within the first couple of days, meaning a week approximately. Then acute tubular necrosis. This is necrosis of the tubules of the kidney, and it's related to ischemia prior to implantation of the kidney, meaning between harvesting and implanting the kidney, it causes renal ischemia, and that manifests in acute tubular necrosis, and this typically also presents within the first week, as you would expect. Next, we have cyclosporin toxicity. Cyclosporin toxicity is a nephrotoxic agent, and it is immune-suppressant agent. Because it's a medication that is given to renal transplant patients, you would expect it not to be immediately or within the first week. Rather, you need a buildup of the medication, and so it typically presents within four weeks after starting the treatment of cyclosporin. And finally, chronic rejection. The word chronic means not acute, and we said acute is within the first week, so anything after that, typically within the first month as well, or after the first month as well, is considered chronic rejection. Now, how do they present? Typically, the presentation of acute rejection or rejection in general or complication is done using nuclear medicine. And what we look for, we look for at the flow to the kidney. One, if there is poor flow to the kidney, that can indicate either anastomotic stricture or so on and so forth. But if there is acute rejection, can also be related to flow to the kidney, and that would show decreased flow. All the other pathologies would have almost near normal flow to the kidney except the chronic rejection. So both the tubular necrosis and cyclosporin toxicity, as you can imagine, is a process that involves the renal parenchyma and not the blood supply. All the rejections, so hyperacute, acute, and chronic rejection, will interfere with the flow to the kidney with chronic rejection. We get chronic scarring and stenosis of the renal artery. And in acute rejection, we see the complication with arterial stenosis. After flow, there is really not much differences, differences between the secretion or excretion ability of the kidney. Obviously, we have a kidney with poor secretion or poor excretion and poor function, so all the ability to evaluate it will be poor regardless of what the study shows. Key thing is the timing as well as the flow into the kidney. Everything else will demonstrate poor flow and retention of radiotracer within the renal cortex. Review from yesterday talking about Partland cyst. If you remember, I said B stands for behind, and this is palpable masses, which can be visible on exam along the lateral and posterior, posterior or inferior vaginal inlet. What is arcuate uterus? Now, this can create some confusion. Some books even call arcuate uterus, the configuration itself, as normal variation. What it is, typically the fundus has convex or outward bulging margins of the myometrium. In arcuate uterus, the myometrium would dip toward the cervix, meaning you will have small dipping or concave margin of the fundus down toward the cervix and the confusion would be to differentiate it from a small septation or septate uterus. Obviously septate uterus will have a clear septa. In 
arcuate uterus, the margin of the fundus would be pointing toward the cervix or concave down shape of the fundus or the myometrium of the fundus. Role of endometrial MRI for endometrial cancer. So the key thing I look for is not really the signal characteristics because it's non-specific. Both T1 and T2 cancer would demonstrate enhancement and typically the enhancement is less than myometrium as you would expect. Muscle would avidly enhance when injected with contrast material and the endometrial cancer will show or demonstrate enhancement not as intense as myometrium and variable enhancement. Key thing why I think MRI is important, at least in terms of testing, is that a intact junctional zone, which we can see on T2 MRI of the uterus, will exclude any myometrial invasion. Again, we said the junctional zone, which is the thick zone of muscle adjacent to the endometrial canal, and an intact thick T2 dark line would exclude myometrial invasion. You're shown a CT scan in the portal venous phase at the level of the kidney and they're pointing to a structure passing under the IVC and heading toward the right kidney and they're trying to trick you in terms of thinking what it is. They're pointing to the right renal artery. Typically the right renal artery would pass posterior to the IVC. The way I remember is if the artery passes on top of the IVC it can compress it but because it passes under the artery the pressure in the artery is much greater than the IVC and so it, blood will continue perfusing the kidney. What is a degenerating fibroid? This is referred to autoembolization of a fibroid due to decreased blood supply or increased size of the fibroid where it overgrows its arterial supply and or autoinfarct. And just like uterine artery embolization of a fibroid, it, you can have post-embolization syndrome, which would present with fever and pain in a patient with large fibroids. On multiple episodes previously, we talked about bladder cancers. We said that the most common bladder cancer is transitional cell. Then we said if we have a midline lesion or a diverticulum of the bladder or uracal remnant, then the most common cancer is adenocarcinoma. And finally, we said if you have chronic suprapubic Foley catheter or infection, the bladder cancer is typically squamous cell cancer. Now, we talked about the bladder, let's talk about the urethra, and it's important to know the differences. Now, for the prosthetic urethra, most common cancer would still be transitional cell cancer, just like the bladder. Think of it that the prostate is next to the bladder, and the cells within the prosthetic urethra are similar to the bladder cells, and so you get transitional cell carcinoma if it happens in the prosthetic urethra. Now, the bulbar and penile urethra which are distal to the prostate, these will have squamous cell cancer. The way I think of it, these are closer to the skin, and so they'll get squamous cell cancer. Finally, you can have a diverticulum, and if you do have a diverticulum, then it takes me back to the bladder. We said any midline lesion or bladder diverticulum, we have adenocarcinoma, 
and if you have a urethral diverticulum as well, it's most likely to be an adenocarcinoma. Let's go over them one more time. Prosthetic urethra will have transitional cell cancer. Bulbar and penile urethra will get squamous cell cancer. And finally, a diverticulum within the urethra will get adenocarcinoma. Key stages for prostate cancer. The key thing they want to get at or possibly test is stage 2 versus stage 3. Stage 2 prostate cancer, typically the lesion or nodules are confined by the capsule without bulging of the capsule. If the capsule is bulging or there is rupture or extension through the capsule, then we're talking about stage 3. And if there is extension and involvement of the seminal vesicles, then it's stage 3B again. Stage 2 is a nodule that is contained within the capsule. It may approach the wall or the capsule without bulging. If it bulges through or extends through the capsule, then it is stage 3. What is the differential for T2 dark renal lesions? Again, the differential is limited, which makes it a good test question. They could show you a T2 dark renal lesion and put only one of these choices trying to get you to choose one of these options. So knowing which three are the differential for T2 dark renal lesion is important. Now T2 dark renal lesion, the first thing I think about is a hemorrhagic cyst. So chronic hemorrhage in the cyst would be T2 dark. Now the other two are lipid poor AML. Typically AML would contain fat and so it would be T2 bright. If it contains low volume of fat or lipid poor AML, then it would be T2 dark. And finally, papillary RCC are typically T2 dark. Again, differential for T2 dark renal lesion, lipid poor AML, hemorrhagic cyst, and papillary RCC. They're likely to be a question on that if they're going to ask about T2 signal and renal lesions. Significance of appendicolith in acute appendicitis. So if we have acute appendicitis and we see an appendicolith, then there is a strong prediction of perforated appendix. Now if we see appendicolith without any signs of infection or inflammation, it doesn't mean that they have appendicitis or perforation. It's a common finding. But if there is appendicolith and appendicitis, then the thought process appendicolith would indicate obstruction of the appendix, which would lead to perforation. Imaging appearance of abruption of the placenta. Typically, an ultrasound placenta is known to be echogenic, and hematoma is hypoechoic. So if there is a placental abruption, we will see hyperechoic structure and under that structure is a hematoma. Hematoma will appear as either anechoic or hypoechoic. Again, if they show you a prenatal ultrasound with hyperechoic structure, not showing you the baby, but they're showing you the placenta and there is a hypoechoic or anechoic fluid collection, then we need to be concerned about placental abruption. A two-step question They could ask you that a patient has thecaluteal cysts diagnosed on first trimester ultrasound, and they could ask you when 
should you expect these cysts to resolve or start decreasing in size? What, dry, what they're trying to get to that, knowing that thecoluteal cysts are stimulated by beta-HCG. Now, beta-HCG is actually produced by the placenta because it will stimulate the ovaries to produce progesterone. Once the placenta starts making its own progesterone, it will stop making beta-HCG. And at that stage, we're talking about the second trimester. Once we get into the second trimester and we stop making beta-HCG, at that point, thecoluteal cyst will involute. Again, thecoluteal cysts are stimulated by beta-HCG. Placenta makes beta-HCG in the first trimester. Beta-HCG stimulates the ovary into producing progesterone. But once the placenta takes over progesterone production, which is in the second trimester, there is no need for production of beta-HCG and thecoluteal cysts will involute. What is Osherman syndrome? This is intrauterine adhesions from prior surgery, including dilation and curettage. Infection can lead to infertility. Again, it's adhesions within the uterine or endometrial canal from prior infection or prior surgery. What is primary megaureter? This is a functional obstruction of the ureter at the level of the bladder due to absent peristalsis. And why it manifests at the level of the bladder? Because there is somewhat of a valve as the ureter enters into the bladder. And if there is absent peristalsis, as you can imagine, that's where we'll see change of caliber and dilation of the ureter. Again, primary megaureter is a functional obstruction at the juxtavesical segment of the ureter due to absent peristalsis. Congenital uterine pathologies. Now we talked about arcuate uterus a couple of minutes ago. Now we're going to talk about three pathologies that can be confused. One is didelphus uterus, bicornuate uterus, and septate uterus. Didelphus uterus, that's a complete duplication of the uterus, cervix, and even the upper vagina. So you have didelphus, complete duplication of the uterus, cervix, and upper vagina. Bicornuate uterus, that's two horns of the uterus, and we have two types of bicornuate uterus, bicornuate unicollis and bicornuate Bicolus. Colus refers to the cervix. So bicornuate, we have two horns. Unicolus, meaning a single cervix. The two horns would empty into a single cervix or would empty into two cervices. So bicornuate, bicolus. And finally, septate uterus. This is an endometrial septa or bridge arising at the level of the fundus and continuing through the endometrial canal. This septa or this wall is made of fibrous or muscular tissue. And this leads to recurrent miscarriage because of decreased blood supply to the septa. Now, how to differentiate them? The key thing they probably want us to get at is that the septa at the level of the fundus, it's flat or normal shape in the septa. In a bicornuate uterus, the fundus dip down close greater than one centimeter. So the fundal wall would be down just like a shape of a heart where it dips down 
toward the cervix. And that's how you really can distinguish sometimes between a bicornuate and a septate uterus. A septate uterus, the fundus does not change its shape. Rather, we have a line coming through. In a bicornuate uterus, we have dipping of the fundus or the top of the uterus down toward the cervix. As Prometheus described it, he said it's like a heart shape of the uterus. What is the adrenal ultrasound appearance on imaging? Obviously, the adrenals would typically be too small to visualize, but if there is a pathology or in kids where the or newborn where the adrenal gland is very large, we can see it. And the way I think of it, that the adrenal is shaped like an Oreo cookie, so dark on both sides with bright stuff in the middle. So the cortex on each side would be dark, so the periphery would be dark, and centrally it would be echogenic or bright material. If they're showing the right adrenal gland, they might show it under the liver, and that's how you tell that they're talking about the adrenal gland. If they're showing the left side, they might show it above the kidney or adjacent to the spleen or pancreas, which would be harder to tell. This is the last question we'll talk about today. We talked about early in the episode the urethral cancer types and based on location. Now we'll just review normal urethral divisions and anatomy. Starting from the bladder or the prostate, we have the prostatic urethra and the membranous urethra. Both of those will contain transitional epithelium. We then get to the bulbous urethra. At that point, the epithelial layer would change and we will have pseudostratified columnar epithelium. Finally, when we get to the fossa navicularis or the opening of the urethra, we have squamous epithelium. And we said you get squamous epithelial distal to the membranous urethra, and that's when you get squamous cell cancer. We said in the prosthetic urethra, you get transitional cell cancer. And finally, we said if you have urethral diverticulum, you get adenocarcinoma.